I advise you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. We'll be reading for our text this morning uh, the complete first chapter, although we'll by no means uh, look in detail at the at the whole chapter, but it does hang together, and uh, a couple of the uh, pieces from Messiah are taken from uh, this chapter, uh, verse 5 and verse 6, that uh, really fit in with the theme of worship, uh, worship of the angels, of God the Son. Let's hear, then, uh, this as God's word to us today. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? book of Hebrews is, in some ways, I think, a a marvelous sermon in and of itself. Uh, You've noticed probably that already that this this is in the section of the New Testament that we refer to as the letters, the epistles, but it really doesn't start out like a letter, does it? Uh, The ending of Hebrews does end like a letter with uh, certain personal uh, comments made and greetings. Uh, But the beginning just jumps right into this uh, marvelous uh, sermon. And and really, I I would commend for your reading the entire book, or certainly at least the first uh, 10 chapters of the the book of Hebrews as a marvelous exposition of Jesus Christ using all kinds of scriptures in it. 
You've already noticed, I'm sure, the multiple references that we read here in this uh, first chapter of, of the book. Uh, the, the author, I think, purposely quotes from all three sections of the Hebrew scriptures. They saw their scriptures as divided into the law or the Torah, uh, the prophets, and, and then the writings. And he, he pulls from every one of those in this uh, beginning chapter. And, and obviously, what he's doing from uh, verse 5 on is supporting what he has said in the first verses. So that from 5 to the end of this chapter, he's talking about uh, the angels worshiping Christ. Okay, you, you can already see in this book that, that he's going to use the the literary device of contrast all the way through it. When you read Hebrews, look for the way that he's using contrast. And right here in this first chapter, he's contrasting the angelic beings, those, those awesome heavenly creatures, powerful and mighty, able to slay thousands in one night. He's contrasting those marvelous creatures with Jesus Christ. And he's saying, in effect, there's no comparison. There's no comparison. The, the angels are nothing like the sun in glory. And so we have that contrast given in verses 5 through the end of the chapter. But but as I, I'm saying, that little word for at the beginning of verse 5 is, is telling us that everything after that is supporting documentation for his thesis in the beginning of the chapter. And that's really what I, I want to focus on, is this beginning, this marvelous beginning to the book. So let's go back to those first verses and, and look for the contrast here. It's so beautifully, artfully presented in these opening lines. Look at them again. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Let, let's notice first here where the, where the emphasis is in terms of initiating the action. Okay? You've got all that opening before you reach the word God. God spoke. God spoke. Your faith, if, you're, if you've been united to Jesus Christ by faith, the repentance of your sin and trusting in him alone for salvation, if, if that's true for you, you have a faith that is unlike any other belief system in the world. Because you know that God has spoken. God has spoken. And indeed, God would have to speak for us mere human beings to come to know him, wouldn't he? I mean, how, how would it be that finite creatures, okay, finite creatures who are, who are limited by time, by space, by their own... Uh, feeble intellects, how could it be that the creatures could somehow reach their creator? I mean, it defies logic. 
It is simply not logical that human beings in our present state could be able to transcend this physical reality to the eternal spiritual realities where God is. If God has not spoken to human beings, we are without hope. But he has spoken. He has spoken. He has spoken repeatedly. Spoken repeatedly, the preacher says here, long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. What grace of God, what condescension of God to speak to his people through human instruments, through words that we can understand. We could never have known his truth if he had not done that. But as marvelous as that is, as wonderful as it is that we have the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and the wonderful revelation through the prophets, that pales in comparison to what we have now. So notice the contrast between verse 1 and verse 2. Now they have one thing in common. That one thing is God has spoken. But otherwise, look at the differences. Long ago, the first verse said, and now in verse 2, in these last days. In these last days, there's a lot of hype, there's a lot of talk about the end times, okay? I just saw online another book come out, 20 Reasons Why We're Near the End of the World. <laughs> Do not pay attention to such foolishness, okay? It, just forget it, because the scripture says, we are in the last days, and we've been in the last days ever since Christ ascended. So don't look for additional signs. The scripture's already telling you right here now, you're in the last days. This is the last age of God's redemptive work. And the finality of that is going to be communicated as we go on in this text. In these last days, long ago he spoke, now he has spoken. He has spoken in many diverse ways. Okay, there's a great diversity in the, in the Old Testament in terms of the, the style of the writing, the style of the preaching, the, the persons, it extends over hundreds of years. There's much variety there, many times, many ways. But now he's spoken in one, in one. Notice as well, he has spoken by the prophets. His word has been given to human beings who spoke that word to his people. But now there is a qualitatively different revelation of God. Now, in these days, these last days, he has spoken to us. Not just the fathers. His gospel is spoken to you today by a son. Literally, that's what the text says. By a son. God had spoken in words. Words that you need to listen to, that I need to listen to in the Old Testament. 
But there is something uniquely different now because he has spoken to us not simply in words, but in the word made flesh. He has revealed truth about himself through the prophets, but he has revealed himself fully in the person of the Son. How wonderful that is. We see this uh, focused on in, in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There is something unique about this revelation. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. God has entered into human history, and he's revealed himself. John goes on to say of Christ, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. There's that former revelation. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. God has revealed himself. He has spoken in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's the revelation that has come to you in Jesus Christ. And now the writer of Hebrews, this, in this sermon, unfolds who that is. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce identifies seven facts about Jesus in verses 2 through 4. Every one of them are worth our attention. Look at the very first one there. He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. He's using biblical language there because God is said to be the heir of his people. Psalm 28, verse 8, Yahweh is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Save your people and bless your heritage. Psalm 82, 8, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. And in Isaiah 19, Isaiah paints a picture of, of the inheritance of God and his people and, and, and says it's going to include even Egypt and Assyria, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. He's going to incorporate into his people as his inheritance those of every tribe and every nation. Micah speaks of, of God as a shepherd of his people, whom he calls the flock of his inheritance. So when, when we read in our text then, that he has appointed the heir of all things, that he was put in the place of the heir of all things, this is calling our attention to Jesus in his exaltation, in his ascension. In this text, we're, we're, we're brought to Jesus as the ascended Lord. He has ascended to the highest place, all of the created universe, all that exists in time and space then, finds its destiny in him. Okay, he inherits everything, so everything has their destiny 
in him. When you read this, you should realize that this includes you. This includes you. He stands at the very point of your eternal destiny. Your entire life, from the instant of your conception in your mother's womb to the moment of your death, has as its ultimate destiny him. Your life has meaning because you have a destiny to stand before him. You are not the product of chance. You have your being in your creator who has revealed himself in the Messiah. John, go back to the beginning of John again. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Even though they had been created by him, they did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, of man, but of God. Spiritually, if you're a believer, you have your origin in Christ. He is your end. He is your destiny in that sense. It goes on, verse 3. He is, that is, the Son is the radiance of the glory of God. Literally, the text says, the radiance of the glory. Using there that term from the Old Testament that we see over and over again, the glory that is associated with God. He is the radiance of that glory. In 2 Corinthians, Paul compares the the Old Covenant through Moses with the New Covenant through Christ, and and he says there is a glory to that Old Covenant. In fact, when Moses came down from the mountain, his very face shone with a reflection of the glory of God in that experience, But, but Paul makes the point that that glory was a fading glory. It was a reflected glory. But now he says... Now we have not come to a, a person who, in whom the glory is fading, but we come to the glory himself. The God who said, let light shine out of the darkness is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so John in that beginning compares his, uh, uses light as a metaphor for Jesus In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome it. And he goes on to say, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the radiance of the glory. Next phrase in in verse 3, The exact imprint of of his nature, the exact impression or representation. The word here is, is, is used of that impression that's made by a die onto a, a piece of metal to make it a coin. He is the exact representation of the being of God. The full and final revelation of God is in Jesus Christ. We expect no fuller revelation because he himself is the complete revelation of God. And in fact, that's why God Jesus can claim a oneness with the Father such that to know him, to see him, is to see the Father's because he's the exact representation of his being. I and the Father are one. 
He says in John chapter 10. John 14, believe in God, believe also in me. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip doesn't quite understand at that point, so Jesus has to go on and tell him, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. He is the exact imprint of his nature, and so he is the full revelation of who God is. He goes on in verse 3. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians chapter 1 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the one who has not only created all things, but he sustains all all things. And now at the toward the end of uh, or the middle of verse 3 we come to what he has done. Okay? We we've we've seen who he is. He is the exact representation of God's being. He is the radiance of the glory. He is the power that sustains the universe. Now we come to what he is what he has done. After making purification for sins. There in just a brief, brief few words. That's what God has done in Jesus Christ. He is creator, that's been acknowledged, but he is also redeemer. He has made purification for sins. And so in that sense, he is, he is a priest. Hebrews 9 will say, when Christ, that is the Messiah, appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. In other words, he, he didn't act as a priest in an earthly tabernacle or a tent. He entered once for all into the holy places, not, not some comparison holy place on earth, but rather the true holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. He made a purification for sins through his own suffering and death. The blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That is the work that Christ has done. And it's a full and final work. The Son has done all that is necessary for the purification of sinners. And that bloody battle that he fought in his suffering and death, he has won the complete victory. Remember that. Do not dare to presume do, do not take away from or try to add to what Jesus has done. You cannot add to what he has done. There, there is no work of penance. There, there is no making up for your mistakes. There is no restitution that you can make 
that will add anything to what Christ has done. In fact, your puny efforts, if you rely upon them, are an insult to what he has done. It's like you're trying to take away from what he has done and say, well, Christ did most of the work, but I need to do the finishing part. That, that is foolishness, isn't it? He has made purification for sins. There's nothing else to be done. If you have repented and placed your faith in him, he has purified you through his own work. Never ought you to doubt the power of his purification in the life of repentant and believing sinners. And as a seal, to the finality of that work, look at what he says next, there at the end of verse 3. After making purification for sins, after accomplishing his work, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is seated because his work is completed. He is enthroned because he has conquered all his and his people's enemies. He has done all that needed to be done. Again, we're brought back to that scene of exaltation that began back in verse 2. Remember at the beginning of verse 2? Talked about him being pointed to the heir of all things. He's in that place of the heir of all things. Now we've returned to that same theme. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And now we're brought back again to verse 2 there because the name that he has been that he has inherited not in the sense of being given it when he didn't have it before but in the sense of ascending to that place where the name is fully revealed we might say is the name of son and the rest of the chapter he talks about the the, the glory that the separation between the glory of the son and that of the angels that worship him. So Christ has ascended then. Philippians chapter 2, we read this same same theme. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is why Jesus can claim in Matthew 28 after his resurrection that all authority and power is given to him. Christ is exalted. This passage is inviting you to see Christ in his exalted state and to place your faith in what he has done. And I want you to notice Notice something else about this. When you humble yourself and exalt the Messiah, when you place your faith and trust in him alone, and you're united with him by faith, he brings you with him in his exaltation. Do you see that? Christ took on human form and bore the sin sinners like you, so that they could be united with him by faith, be purified, and be brought with him into glory. When Christ is exalted, 
you're exalted. That, that's why, as a believer, you don't have to exalt yourself. Okay. It, you, your main goal in life is, is not your self-esteem. It's not to build yourself up. I mean, if you're exalted in Christ, that's far better than any earthly glory could be, isn't it? If you've been exalted with Christ, what, what earthly, earthly uh, fame or, or fortune could, could come anywhere close to that? So you have been eternally exalted in Christ, but, but remember at the same time, you only experience that through the humbling of yourself in repentance and faith. Now, Jesus has given you the path. The way to exaltation is through humbling. The way to glory is through self-denial. That's what he chose for himself. In John 17, Jesus prays, Father, glorify your son. And he prays that knowing that that means within hours he is going to suffer hell itself. He knew the way to glory in the presence of the Father was him to glorify, for him to glorify the Father in obeying him to the point of suffering and death. And so Jesus calls you to the same self-denial. In Luke chapter 9, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what is a profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You make the exchange of dying to self to gain exaltation with Christ. Your identity as a believer is now with him, not on this earth. This is the basis for, this is the basis for your daily life as a believer. Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, if you have anything of a relationship with Jesus Christ, he's saying there, if it is true that you're a follower of Christ, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in a full accord and of one mind. You will show, he's saying, your connection with Christ by your unity as a body of Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And how do you get that unity? How do you get that new mind? Well, he goes on to say, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In your identification with Christ, he has given you a new way of thinking, he's saying. It's like he's given you a new mind as a congregation. Have this mind 
among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. As a believer, you're to have the mind of Christ that led him to condescend to become your Savior in order to be glorified to be your Lord. So what does that look like for you? Well, it looks like, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, it looks like dying to yourself. It looks like that, that command that Jesus gave to his disciples. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to follow, you're going to have to follow me with a cross. You're going to have to take up your cross daily. Paul puts it this way in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, how can he say that you've died to sin? Well, you've died to sin by being united with Christ. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Remember, he spoke of his death as a baptism he had to undergo. You're identified with him. You're united with him in that baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you have the two together. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We have died to sin, so we are no longer enslaved by it. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. In his exaltation, Christ has brought you out from under the law into him by grace. And so it's in his power, in his strength, in the accomplishment that he has made for you in purification for sins, that you're able to live out your faith now. The writer of Hebrews will go on uh, to use the image of, 
of passing through suffering to glory. He will talk about the fact that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. That's the same way that you're to think in this life. You're to have your eyes fixed on that goal of glory that Christ has obtained for you and see the task that he set before you in your job, in your home, in your relationships with other people in the community, to see that as the arena in which you live out your faith and trust in him in obedience and conquering the sin that, that is within you uh, through his, his strength. And, and, and the wonderful thing about that is you are guaranteed the victory. Okay, Christ has been exalted, and in him you share in that exaltation, so you know the end. You know the victory is yours because you're relying upon his strength from day to day. I encourage you to to walk in that even this week. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this glorious good news. Uh, Help us to understand it better. and, And we pray, Lord, that it would shape our thinking, that we would have that mind that that was yours, that we would think in, in a way that reflects your truth and your what you have done for us. Uh, give us that confidence, Lord, that will enable us to be your obedient people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.